0: Uh, this morning we are going to continue our study of the life of Moses and we will be in Exodus chapter 14 uh, there are printed outlines that are contained in the bulletin and if you didn't get one feel free to grab one and there are full manuscripts uh, of the message as well my dear wife who always catches my typos caught two glaring ones this week but uh, see if you can find them when you read the manuscript. <laughs> I read it over probably half a dozen or more dozen times trying to make sure it reads well and then I skip things like that, but she caught it, so anyway, uh, I want to read the entire chapter because um, it is God's Word that is the most important and my comments on it are secondary. Exodus 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal-zephon opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly, or it may mean going out in an organized fashion there. Uh, then the Egyptians chased them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Piharoth in front of Beelzebom. And Fa- as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, and yet it gave light at night. And thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept back, or swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land, so that the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them to, into the midst of the sea." At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let's flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots. And their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army. that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. And in his servant Moses. After an extensive tour of the United States some years ago, the late pastor and theologian, a German pastor and theologian, Helmut Tillich, was asked what he saw as the greatest defect in American Christians. He replied, They have an inadequate view of suffering. That is a serious problem. Uh, It is vitally important for every Christian to have a biblical view of suffering. Because the enemy of our souls uses suffering to try and devour believers. Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 and 11, Peter was writing this to a suffering church, and Peter said, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world." After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You notice how Peter emphasizes there the sovereignty of God. To him be the dominion forever and ever and how God uses our trials to perfect, uh, confirm, strengthen, and establish our faith. If you don't see that God is sovereign over trials, you really only have a few options. Uh, One option is the view that Satan and his evil forces are either equal to or greater than God, and they're All fighting it out, but God can't control Satan. Uh, That view is called dualism, and it's the view of Zoroastrianism, but not of Christianity. A second view would be that um, God himself just is out there. He's not concerned about the events on earth. He created everything, but now he is inactive. It's the view of deism. Uh, view of some of our founding fathers uh, in this country. Uh, There's a slightly different, more recent option called open theism. And they claim that God really feels bad about your trials, and uh, He doesn't really like the fact that they happen to you. But they argue that God doesn't know or control the future. That's up to human free will. And so You know, he's in heaven saying, wow, I'm sorry that happened, but God cannot stop things like that from happening. Uh, All of those views are attempts, if you will, to get God off the hook for the problem of suffering and evil. Uh, The problem is they're all heretical because they deny essential uh, attributes of God that are clearly taught in Scripture. Scripture. In Exodus 14, Pharaoh has driven all of Israel out of Egypt after that final tenth plague when all the firstborn in Egypt died. He just said, get out of here. Uh, The land was practically destroyed after the ten plagues. But now our text says that he and his servants had a change of heart in verse 5. Unfortunately, it wasn't a change of heart where they said, you know, we have sinned and God is righteous, and we are not, and we need to get right with God. It wasn't that kind of change of heart. But rather, they decided that they had made a mistake to let the uh, enslaved Jews go. So they send the army to pursue Israel, and uh, they want to inflict some harm on them, but they also want to bring them back and make them their slaves again. God, at this point, directs Moses to tell Israel to turn around. They've already uh, gotten somewhere into the wilderness a little ways, but God tells them to turn back and camp in a place that was a military trap. Uh, And God had a definite plan to glorify or honor himself, that phrase occurs two or three times, uh, by... Delivering helpless Israel and destroying Pharaoh's army. Uh, this story, of course, the parting of the Red Sea, is one of the most familiar in the Bible, thanks to Charlton Heston and uh, the movie and all of that. But um, anyway, uh, it's a familiar story, but sometimes with familiar stories, you miss the point. Seems to me the point of this story is this that God ordains trials in our lives, so that we will trust him and honor him when he delivers us. Um, You'll observe that it was shortly after Pharaoh had sent Israel away that he has this change of heart. And the application is this, if you're a new Christian, be on guard because it's right after God delivers you from Satan and his forces when you become a Christian, that the enemy says, let's get him back. And they pursue and want to gain the upper hand uh, through trials. And so if you're a new believer, or if you're discipling new believers, which I hope some of you are, uh, you need to ground them in the doctrine of suffering, what the Bible teaches about it because uh, otherwise the enemy will destroy, as we saw in that text in 1 Peter. Now, there are three main truths here that I want to bring out this morning. And the first one is simply that God is sovereign over all things, and that includes the trials that come into our lives. It's really important to affirm that. Uh, There are not just these open theists, but also many in the Pentecostal movement today say that trials all come from the devil. And they almost fall into dualism, because it's not like God is over the devil. It's, yeah, the devil did this, and we have to fight the devil. And so they, um, they're trying again to say God doesn't ordain trials. Now, the book of Job is very clear that the devil can inflict some pretty awesome trials on God's people. The suffering that came on Job was through Satan, but that book is also clear. Satan can only go as far as God permits him to go, and no further. And God gave Satan permission, but he said, but don't do this. And Satan could not exceed the limits that God set. And the Bible is clear that God uses even demonic forces to accomplish his holy purposes... And yet, God is not responsible for the evil. You remember that Paul's thorn in the flesh, he said, was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, to keep me humble. Well, humility isn't Satan's goal, that's God's goal. But God uses a demon to make Paul humble, which is what God wanted to accomplish. And there's a mystery there I can't quite explain. But, the, the point is simply, God is sovereign then over all the trials that come into his children's lives. And that's so obvious here in the first four verses of Exodus 14. The Lord tells Moses, turn back and camp in a spot by the sea. There is no route of escape. There are mountains on both sides. Uh, the Egyptian army is coming in from behind. And in front of them is this body of water that they cannot cross. Now scholars debate, where exactly was the Red Sea crossing? Some translate um, the Red Sea, the margin of my Bible has the Sea of Reeds, because uh, the Hebrew word can mean reeds, although some dispute that. Uh, The problem is this, that papyrus reeds do not grow at what we know as the Red Sea, which would be now the Suez Gulf on the left side of the Sinai Peninsula and the Gulf of Aqaba on the right. Um, But they only grow in the shallower marshlands that are further to the north. And so some of these scholars say that Israel did not cross that deep Red Sea, but only one of the shallower, bitter lakes that have papyrus reeds growing further to the north. There are some problems, however, with that view. Um, One is, there are other places in the Bible where this same phrase uh, that is used here obviously means the Red Sea, not something else. And so, it can mean that. Uh, Secondly, the depth of water through which Israel passed here, as the um, story explains and then God sent it back to drown the Egyptian army, it was more than a shallow lake. Uh, there's a big body of water, and when the water swooped back on them, they simply could not escape. Uh, twice in verse 22 and again in verse 29, the parting of the sea is described as a wall of water on the right hand and left. I don't think it was as narrow as the uh, well-known movie uh, with Charles and Heston portrayed it because you've got to get 2 million people through there in one night so probably it was it could have been a mile wide but the water was standing as a wall which was clearly uh, a miracle this is not explainable by human means God used the wind to clear it out and dry the seabed but the wall was stacked up like a wall, or the water was stacked up like a wall. Um, More recent scholarship has shown that in ancient times, the Red Sea actually extended further north than it does today, and may even have been connected to what are called the Bitter Lakes uh, in the north, in which case there well could have been papyrus reeds growing beside it. But whether we can identify the exact location or not, I think we can believe this story that Moses wrote and which um, all the peoples of the ancient uh, Near East knew about and uh, it's never refuted in any other literature. Um, God did a mighty miracle to deliver his people and he did it by parting this deep body of water, the Red Sea. And the significant point, though, to me, as I was meditating on this chapter, is the first few verses which show God deliberately told Moses where to turn, where to go, where to camp, and it was a trap. I mean, militarily, any military strategist would look at the map and say, that's suicidal. You know, you don't want to take a body of people there, a group of people there, if you're trying to get away from this. Uh, crazy uh, monarch in Egypt who's trying to get them back. Uh, and Pharaoh got news of the report and thought, hey, they're sitting ducks. I mean, what in the world did this guy Moses think leading them there? You know, I'm going to go pick them off. Uh, he just delivered them into my hand. And the entire situation was orchestrated by God for his sovereign purposes. Now, again, those who deny that God is sovereign over evil are trying to protect God's reputation, you know, to get him off the hook, to say, well, a good and loving God, an all-powerful God, could not uh, endorse or ordain that kind of evil. But, again, there are many stories in the Bible, including the cross, the story of Jesus on the cross, where it's very clear that God sovereignly ordained it, evil people did it, and they were responsible for what they did to accomplish God's purpose. And we just have to leave it there. I believe there's a very pastoral aspect to this, and it's, it's this. If you deny God's sovereignty over trials, you rob people of comfort in trials. We had a lady, many of you know her, some years ago in our church in her 50s who was dying of cancer, and her husband had already died at an early age. And I remember one of the last times I visited her in the hospital, she told me, if I didn't believe God was sovereign, I would be in despair. But she was trusting the Lord in that trial because she knew he was sovereign over uh, all that happens. A second point to note here under this heading is that God sovereignly ordains trials then for our ultimate good. And Romans 8.28 is a familiar verse and it brings great comfort when we go through trials. Uh, It reads, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And It's probably not advisable to lay that verse on a suffering or grieving person. Uh, They know it. They don't need that right at the moment. They need your comfort. But you should know it and lay hold of it as an anchor for your soul when you're going through a difficult trial. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is a great chapter that talks about how as a loving father, God disciplines us for our Good to train us, and in verses 10 through 11, it says, He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. And then the author explains, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God has a plan in our sorrows and our trials uh, to train us in righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 67, says a similar thing. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So God used affliction in the life of the psalmist. And then he goes on just a few verses later, verse 75. and says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the, the trauma and the real pain that happens when we go through trials. So, we need to own up to it and admit, yeah, I am really hurting and grieving is not wrong. But I am saying this, the only comfort that we can have in a time of difficult trials is that which Joseph mentioned to his brothers. Remember, they had sold him as a teenager into slavery in Egypt. What a trauma that would have been. Uh, He spent time in prison in Egypt before finally God elevated him to second under Pharaoh. And he told his brothers this in Genesis 50 and verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So Joseph knew God was sovereign even over his brother's evil, and God was using it to work it all together for good. So God is sovereign then over the uh, trials we encounter, and he ordains those trials for our ultimate good, Uh, Note also that God is sovereign over the hearts of all people, and that includes these powerful political leaders. Uh, Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the planet in his day. He had an impressive army, and um, God repeatedly lets Moses know that Pharaoh's change of heart was because God hardened his heart in judgment. He says that in verse 4, he repeats it in verse 8, and he says it again in verse 17. And Solomon in the Proverbs chapter 21 in verse 1 says the same thing. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So God is sovereign even over the most powerful monarch on the face of the earth. And that's a comfort, because right now there are some very evil dictators around the world who are committing atrocities on their people. And, you know, sometimes when you read the headlines or read the news, you might say, well, where is God in all of this? There are Christians in North Korea, you know, who are suffering, and Christians in China who are suffering, and in some of the... Muslim countries, and so on. Well, I think the psalmists often utter similar cries. You know, why do the nations rage, the peoples devise a vain thing, and so on. And then in Psalm 2, where that um, question occurs, David says in verse 4 He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, and he uh, puts in charge whom he wants and takes down whom he wants. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35 the Lord says vengeance is mine and retribution in due time their foot will slip. In due time God's time their foot will slip. Remember too the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel how he got proud and he was again at his day the most powerful monarch on the earth and God said, He's done for a while. Send him out in the field like a wild animal. You get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and God predicts how the Antichrist will rise to power and he will uh, deceive many and inflict much uh, persecution on the saints. But then after he has inadvertently served the purpose of God, God will consume him and he will be done. So God is sovereign. And to me, that's a great comfort when I face trials. And I hope it is to you that you can trust, even though you don't understand what he's doing, you can trust that he is in charge. But the question remains, well, then why? Why does he ordain these trials? And God ordains these trials so that we will trust him to deliver us. And there are three lessons here about trusting in the Lord. Uh, the first is simply being that God ordains trials so we'll trust him. And he does it on different levels. He often does it before we even know him as Savior. Uh, where we haven't trusted Christ and You'll hear numerous testimonies that run along these lines. People will say, I was a happy unbeliever. I was getting along great in life. Everything was fine. Good job. Good home. Good this. Everything's great. And then wham, everything hit. And at that point, I knew I needed God. And maybe someone at that point shared Christ and how he died on the cross for their sins and was risen from the grave. And at that point, the person came to faith. God used the trial to get the person to see, I have no option except trusting God, and that's what brought them to faith. I love the story in the New Testament of blind Bartimaeus. It's in Mark chapter 10, and uh, Bartimaeus is blind. He's in Jericho, and he's sitting by the road, and he hears that Jesus is coming through town. And so when he hears the hustle and bustle of the crowd, knows Jesus is within earshot, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, many in the crowd try to silence him. They're embarrassed by this guy. Keep it down. Come on. You know, and he cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the Lord hears. He stops. He hears him. He calls him to come, and Jesus then asks him a strange question. What do you want me to do for you? You know, you go, duh, here's a blind man. What do you want me to do for you? I think he was trying to get Bartimaeus to acknowledge his need and to show that his trust was totally in Jesus. And, of course, Bartimaeus says, Rabboni, which means teacher, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus heals him instantly and says, Go, your faith has made you well. You know, if Bartimaeus had not been blind, he probably would have been sitting along the roadside as a curiosity seeker. But he wouldn't have been a seeker of Jesus. And you know, a lot of people are that way. Oh yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about Jesus. But they aren't blind. They don't see their blindness. They are blind, but they don't see it. It's when God impresses your need on you that you go, oh my goodness, I've got to trust in him. He's my only hope. And that's what Bartimaeus did. But then God also uses trials and ordains them for us as believers so that we'll trust him more deeply. If you want to pick a man of faith in the New Testament, I think almost all of us would instantly say the Apostle Paul. I mean, what a what a hero of faith Paul was. And yet, the Lord knew that Paul needed to trust him even more. And so the Lord brought some difficult trial into Paul's life. And Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, here's the reason, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Now, we need to be careful, though, because sometimes our cry to God in a time of need is kind of like the guy in the foxhole, you know, the typical, get me out of here and I'll follow you, and he gets him out, and then he totally forgets his promise to God. And it's possible to cry to God in panic, but not in faith. Here, in verse 10... Pharaoh and his army are drawing near. Israel sees them, and they become very frightened, and so they cry out to the Lord. But then in the next verse, they accuse Moses of bringing them out into Egypt so they can, out of Egypt, so they can die in the wilderness. So this isn't a cry of faith. It's a cry of panic. And by accusing Moses he just brought us out here to die, they're, they're basically saying, we know more than you, Moses, and by implication, we know more than God who told you to lead us out here. And so it's not really a true cry of faith here. It's just a, a, try, a cry of panic. Genuine faith submits to God's mighty hand, as 1 Peter 5 says, and casts all anxiety on him. It rests on him. And when you begin accusing God or complaining in a negative way, we'll look at more of this in the next chapter, uh, it's evidence of a lack of genuine faith. A uh, second thing to note here, though, is that we can trust that God always has the resources we need for deliverance. The angel of God and the cloud, the pillar of cloud, have been going in front of Egypt. I mean Israel, leading the way out of Egypt. Now, with the Egyptian army coming up behind, the angel and the cloud move behind Egypt, and they uh, serve as a barrier between Israel and the Egyptian army. It's interesting, it served as darkness for Egypt, but light for Israel. It reminds me of that verse in... um, second corinthians where paul says the same gospel is the fragrance of death unto death to some but life unto life to others who are being saved same message different result same pillar darkness on one side light for israel on the other side an old british uh, scholar ch Macintosh, observed he has placed himself between us and our sins and it is our happy privilege to find him between us and everyone and everything that could be against us. And then he notes, the same waters which formed a wall for God's redeemed formed a grave for Pharaoh. And so the point is, again, God has infinite resources to deliver his people. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17 gives us the promise No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Now what does trusting God mean? Well, trusting God sometimes means doing nothing else except trusting him. But sometimes trusting God, at other times, it means using appropriate means. Notice verses 13 and 14 again. And this reflects Moses' great trust in the Lord. Moses said to the people... Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. That's a great picture of our salvation. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you cannot do anything to earn that. All you can do is receive it by faith. And even saving faith and repentance are gifts from God. So unless God grants you the faith, you can't believe. Now some people say, well, how can God command sinners to, believe, to repent and believe if they are unable to repent and believe unless he gives them the gift of repentance and faith? Well, the Bible clearly shows that with the command, God gives the power. He grants what he is commanding uh, to those whom he ordains to save. In Mark chapter 3, there's a story where Jesus is in the synagogue and there's a man there with a withered hand. That meant his hand was like paralyzed. He couldn't use it. Now, Jesus could have just healed the man with a prayer to God. He could have taken him aside privately and um, spoken to him. But instead, he calls him front and center in front of the synagogue. And then Jesus says to this man, stretch out your hand. And you think, huh? Is he mocking him? That's the problem, Lord. He can't stretch out his hand. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And with the command, he imparts the power, and the man stretches out his hand and is healed. You see the same thing in John chapter 11, where you got Lazarus dead in the tomb for four days. And Jesus shows up at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. Huh? He's been dead four days, Lord. I know. Lazarus, come forth. And with the command, he imparts life, and Lazarus is able to to respond and come forth. Now, there's an impossible command in our text. In verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel, go forward. Hey, that's a great idea, Lord. Go forward. Except, did you notice that big body of water right in front of us called the Red Sea? Uh, We would love to go forward. Pharaoh's bearing down behind. And there's nowhere else to go. But how do we go forward? And of course, God uh, parts the sea as Moses lifts his hand over it and Israel can obey God's command. Now there are just a few instances in the Bible where God says, don't do anything, just trust me and I'll do it. But more often than not, the usual method is First, trust the Lord, call out to him in prayer, rely totally on him, and then take appropriate action. For example, if you don't have a job, your first duty, pray. Ask God, God, I need a job. Then what? You sit waiting for somebody to call you? I hope not. Beat the streets and do everything you know how to get a job. Or, <clears throat> you know, maybe you're sick. Pray for healing. Amen. But get proper medical attention as well. It's both and. Or maybe there are problems in your marriage. What do you do? Well, pray for those problems, but God's Word has many, many commands that we are to obey in our marriages of sacrificially loving our mate and that sort of thing. So usually trusting the Lord means first of all praying, but then taking appropriate action. So God is sovereign then over all things, including the trials that, that come into our lives. He ordains those trials so we'll learn to trust him to deliver us. But again, you still, there's still one question. Well, why this whole scenario? Why does he do this? And we see the bottom line in our text is that God ordains trials so that we will honor him when he delivers us. In verse 4, God explains his reason to Moses for these events. And by the way, God doesn't always explain the reasons for our trials. Uh, Here, he graciously explains it to Moses. He says this, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored or glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And then he repeats it in verse 18. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Uh, Philip Ryken has a thick book on sermons on Exodus, which he subtitles. uh, The theme of Exodus, he says, is saved for God's glory. And I think he has that right. And he further explains everything God has done, everything God is now doing, and everything God will do in the future, he does for his own glory. And that's clearly the reason God did this. He bottles Israel in at the seashore so that he can part the, the waves, the water, <clears throat> and be glorified in their deliverance. And note that God is glorified not only in saving his elect, he's also glorified in judging the wicked. He's glorified when he judges this wicked Pharaoh and his idolatrous troops. Now, what do you do when God delivers you? Well, when God delivers you, give him the glory. That's the point. And that applies to your salvation, and we'll see that next week in the Song of Moses in chapter 15. But it also applies when he delivers you from a trial. Uh, In Psalm 50, in verse 15, it's a great promise. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. And so here you have the most powerful war machine on the face of the earth, Pharaoh and all of his chariots and horsemen, and they are no match for God. God simply Breathes on them. In effect, he blows this wind, parts the sea, the wind stops, the sea comes back on them, and they are all drowned. And um, <clears throat> as a result, in verse 31, it says that Israel feared the Lord and believed in him as well as in his servant Moses. Now we're going to see again, that's pretty temporary belief on their part because in the next chapter, they grumble, but the point is, as we go through a difficult trial, that the aim is that we will glorify the Lord when He delivers us. If you're in a serious trial, I encourage you to read that great ending of Romans chapter eight. I've been there so so many times when I've been going through difficulty, and I, I just love the crescendo that Paul builds that chapter up to. In verse 31, he says, If God is for us, who is against us? Nothing can stand against us if God is for us. And he goes on and he lists every conceivable trial, including being slaughtered as sheep uh, by the enemy for God's sake. And then he adds in verse 37, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. But then that raises a final question. What if God doesn't deliver us? What if we do get slaughtered like sheep by some cruel dictator? You know, what if we die of cancer and aren't healed? What if our child gets sick and doesn't recover? And all the what ifs, Well, I believe the Bible is clear. When God doesn't deliver you, you still give Him the glory. You give Him the glory. And there have been many of God's saints who have trusted Him, and they have trusted Him right into their death, a premature death from either disease or killed for their faith, martyred. You read chapter 11 of Hebrews, And it just recounts story after story after story of by faith, by faith, by faith, they conquered, they did this, they did that. And then right in the middle of a verse, the verse starts with, by faith women received back their dead through resurrection. And right in the middle of that verse, he continues, verse 35, others, he says, were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Same faith, same God, delivered some, some suffered terribly. Uh, I love it in the book of Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decide we're not bowing down to, to Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls them in and he's got this blazing furnace he's threatening to throw them into unless they bow to his idol. And they answer him so boldly. They say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Then they continue. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And, of course, he angrily throws them in the fire and God delivers them there but the point is they were ready to glorify God whether they got delivered or whether they were burned to death they just said we're following the Lord and in the case of Hebrews 11 they knew there's a better resurrection God will uh, honor them in eternity and you see that when you come to Revelation 6 and there's that interesting scene in heaven where the The souls of those who have been uh, slaughtered for the gospel are there. And they cry out to God, how long? How long, oh God? And God in effect says, tell them to hold on, give them a white robe. We're not done yet until the number of martyrs is complete. And God has a specific number of martyrs and he knows what he's doing. And when that's complete, then they will receive their reward. Uh, There's a mystery there. You know, in the New Testament at the cross, Satan and all of God's enemies thought they had gained the victory by killing Jesus. But Paul says in Colossians 2.15 that through the cross, God disarmed the authorities and triumphed over those forces of darkness when he secured our salvation. And God then raised Jesus from the dead and Ephesians 1 says... He is seated above all rule and authority, every name that is named in heaven, on earth, and beneath the earth. Jesus is Lord. And so even if we should suffer martyrs' deaths, as some of our brothers and sisters are doing, God is going to be glorified in the final resurrection, we'll all be raised from the dead, and we will rule with him throughout eternity. I don't know if you read some of the ancient documents of the church but you should and uh, one of them you should read through you can find it online is the heidelberg catechism from 1563 and it begins with a question what is your only comfort in life and death it's a serious question what is your only comfort in life and death. It's not my bank account. (laughs) You know, it's not my, my family. It's not, you know, anything that I have. Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has faithfully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. So I think the point then of Exodus 14 is honor God by letting Him be your only comfort in life and in death. Let's pray. Father, I pray that all our hope would be in you. I pray for any here who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that you would open their eyes to see their desperate need for him today. That they would not let the sun set this evening without seeking you, calling upon you to save them. And thank you for the promise of your word that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved I know some of your saints are suffering difficult trials I pray that the Lord Jesus who was tempted in all points as we and yet without sin who suffered terribly at the hands of sinners that he would be their comfort that they would seek him that they would know him better through this trial that they would trust him more fully We pray, Lord, that we would honor and glorify you to those around us as you deliver us from different troubles and trials. We thank you for your word. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.